Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But... When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me, please, in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise this morning, Lord, for calling us out of our beds, out of sleep, Lord, to gather with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for our time of worship this morning, Lord, uh, through hearing your word taught in Sunday school, through hearing it read this morning, Lord, through singing hymns and praises to your name and through our liturgy and confession. Lord, we pray, God, that you would continue to honor our worship, Lord, with your presence and pour out your spirit among us, Lord, as we hear your word taught and proclaimed, and as we come to the table together, Lord, we pray, Father, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible or a device, or you want to look in the pew in front of you, if you would, grab a Bible or turn on your device and make your way to Matthew 18. The only reason I'm asking you to do this is because I want us to notice two very specific things before we really dive into this text this morning. And the first one is that, similar to last week, is that our text this week is very practical in its nature, right? In its interpretation and in its application. But second, and the reason I'm having you open your Bibles to Matthew 18, is that I don't want us to dive into this text without realizing how intimately connected this text is with what we looked at last week with church discipline. So, I would like to actually pick up in verse 15 and read 15 through 22, which is where Jesus responds to Peter. And so again, just from last week, we see this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or three, if two of you agree about anything on earth that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven. And then just to end at the very end, so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't want us to miss that these two texts are intentionally connected. Because what this tells us is it tells us that the lesson really is very similar. And that while we are to speak repentance and redemption and restoration and seek that as we seek church discipline, the spiritual principle of the gospel remains from then as it does to here. Forgiveness is to be unending. The goal is always to gain back my brother, to gain back my adelphos, that Greek word that stresses that this is not just your sibling from your same parentage, but a member of the same covenant community. And so here at the very beginning of our text in your bulletins, Peter, we get this very clearly. He understands this lesson, right? He gets the discipline teaching. But as Peter is wont to do, he can't help himself. He has to ask a question. He has to talk, right? Because this is how Peter processes. It's really kind of how we figure out how Peter works, right? He's always talking. He never learns to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> and so he asks this question. And he says, all right, look, Jesus, I get it. Right? I get it. I need to seek repentance and redemption and restoration. But, but honestly, how long, how long am I supposed to put up being sinned against? How many times? When is enough enough? To which Jesus responds with this impossible number, right? Now, let's be honest, right? This whole parable, and even the teaching from last week in, in about church discipline, they're very hard teachings. So if, if our pride is easily offended when our wrongs are pointed out to us, just imagine how much our pride can be offended when our righteous anger, because of the sin of our brother against us, is easily heeded and accepted, Right? And while we should be praising God for such a quick turnaround, a quick repentance on our brother's part, sometimes we just like to be angry for a while, right? right? So if you're like me, though, especially, right, if, if you're like me and you, you overstress and get anxious about any kind of confrontation, you spend more time preparing for that confrontation than the amount of time that it takes to actually deal with it, right? And so you're thinking in this case, sure, absolutely, I want you to repent, I want you to, to apologize, I want you to to come clean, I want to gain you back as my brother, but frankly, I want you to say no for a few more times so I can be angry for a little bit longer, right? Because I like to be mad sometimes, right? And so that's sort of the sentiment that's behind Peter's question at the top of this text. To which is why he asks, this is why he asks it in the way that he does. He says, how many times should, I, should my brother sin against me and I keep forgiving him? As many as seven so not, not, I don't want to beat on Peter too hard here, but notice in this question, there's a tiny amount of false piety in his words. 
Because you see, his, his question reflects this rabbinic tradition regarding the limits of forgiveness, which said, look, if someone continues to sin against you, you only have to forgive them three times. Three times and that's it. So Peter, in this case, is probably thinking, you know what? I'm being very generous, right? I'm offering to go beyond three. I'm offering even to go beyond doubling it to six. I'm offering to go seven. And so we know, we, we realize this very specifically, right? Seven symbolizes perfection in Scripture. And so Peter could easily be asking whether he must forgive perfectly or if seven is just the absolute perfect number in which to forgive. So now, again, we, we give Peter a little bit of a hard time. Like we chuckle about this on this side of the resurrection and the closing of the canon, but, but his question has absolute merit when we think about it from our own perspective, especially as it relates to somebody who is consistently and constantly repeating the same offense against us. So when they ask us for forgiveness, we're not wrong to at least wonder, are they really repenting or are they going to do it again? How long will it be until they sin against me again? How many times do I need to be made a fool of before enough is enough? To which Jesus responds, no, Peter, not seven, but 70 times seven or 77 times. What Jesus is doing, as he does frequently, is he's speaking hyperbolically. Right? He's, he's, the amount here is not as important as the lesson. Because any one of us can sit back and we can count to seven while we slowly wait for that obligation of seven to end while at the same time plotting vengeance against our offending brother or sister in Christ. Right? So Jesus' point here is not a limit of the times forgiveness needs to occur, but rather the boundless nature of forgiveness that is supposed to define us as believers in him and his church. Peter and Jesus both know that it is absolutely very hard to forgive, particularly if it is a constant repeating offense. But Jesus wants to motivate us to continue in a pattern of forgiveness. And so as God's mercy is without limit, so too the forgiveness of the saints must be without limit. And so to illustrate this point to Peter and to the twelve and then through the Holy Spirit to us as his church, he tells this parable that many of us are very familiar with. And I want to point out two very interesting details in this parable. I don't want to dive into this too deeply, but these two points are very interesting. So first, notice there's an incredible difference in the amounts of debt that are owed, that are brought up in this parable. And that, in the amount of debt, is really the essential element to understanding Jesus' whole purpose of this teaching on forgiveness. And so as you look through this, you see there are two, there are two amounts. One is, is 10,000 talents versus 100 denarii. So let's understand this because we don't use this monetary accounting system, right? We use dollars and cents. So a denarii, and we will see this even more specifically next week when we're in uh, Matthew 20 on laborers in the vineyard who go out at different times of the day. But a denarii was a respectable day's wages, right? So if you put in a good, long, hard day's work, you could get the maximum amount of a denarii. That's not the minimum amount you could get, but that is the maximum amount you would get. So, understanding the way Jews, uh, our, our ancient Israel, kept time and the way in which they worked, if a Jewish typical week was to work for six days and then rest on the Sabbath, you're looking at about three and a half to four-ish months of wages 
that could be earned. So the second service servant, servant owes about four months' worth of wages to his friend. That's 100 denarii. But 10,000 talents is a whole other story. One talent, one out of the 10,000, represent at least 20 years' worth of wages. According to one commentator who did the math, because I'm horrible at mathematics, said this. He said, 10,000 talents is equal to the wages earned in 200,000 years, or 60 million days' worth of work. Again, 100 denarii is not chump change, right? But it's small potatoes when compared to a debt of working 60 million days. 10,000 talents is an impossible sum. And it's more than any good laborer, not even a mediocre laborer, a good laborer could earn in over multiple lifetimes. And that's the whole point. Jesus is speaking with hyperbole again. And so there's this vast difference between the amounts of debt owed that's important to keep in mind as we look at the second detail that Jesus brings out. And that is the different reactions and responses in this passage. And so first what we see then is a reaction from the first servant, who is later identified as the wicked servant. We see him reacting and begging for mercy. But then we see a response to that begging as mercy being extended. And so we see this again. A kingdom, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with all of his servants. Which he began, and when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, obviously... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored his master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now understanding this monetary sum, we can really understand the mercy that's being extended here. Right? Considering the massive amount of debt that is owed, Frankly, this, this wicked servant's assumption that he can even beg is absolutely absurd. <laughs> he owes 200,000 years worth of, worth of money. But the absurdity is within the plea itself because he says this, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now we've already established, right, that that's not even remotely possible. Like, you know this king is hearing this begging and he goes, no you won't. Just, no you won't. But that's Jesus' point in drawing our attention to the servant. The servant's begging for mercy is his absolute only option. He has no other recourse. His master is about to sell him and his wife and his children and everything that he owns, possibly to different masters, in order to repay his debt. He's about to, he's about to get his, have his family split up and all of his possessions thrown away. So again, he has no other recourse but to beg for mercy. And that too really is the point. In the face of insurmountable debt that cannot be repaid to the king, mercy is our only option. And so we see the king's response, right? It far outweighs the servant's begging. He doesn't give him time to repay everything. He has sympathy, he has pity, and he cancels the debt. In one word, the problem is gone, right? Right? As Martin Luther sings in uh, A Mighty Fortress, one little word shall fail him. Right? This is what I was thinking of in this moment. Right? 
And again, Jesus' point is illustrated. God's forgiveness is immeasurable. The debt is too high to repay. And wiping it clean by his grace is an act of God's mercy. And because we have a great king who has forgiven us far more than we can ever attempt to repay, we are to forgive one another ad infinitum. The second reaction that's in this parable is the same. It's a begging for mercy, but the response is different. The response is mercy being violently withheld. And so we see this picking up in the next sentence. He says, but, building off of what we just saw, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience, and I will pay you. And he refused and put him into prison until he should pay all the debt and when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, rightly so, and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So let's be honest. This reaction is completely unnecessary, right? This is overkill, right? We've, we have established the difference in debts. And this wicked servant goes out and puts his fellow servant, his Adelphos, his brother, his member of the same covenant community, and a chokehold worthy of the main event at WrestleMania, right? This is Andre the Giant picking up Hulk Hogan and choke slamming him, right? And while in this chokehold, he's down on his knees and his throat is being constricted by his angry fellow servants' hands, and he says, have patience with me, and I will pay you. This is a word-for-word plea that the same man just uttered to the king. And it's obvious to everyone reading the story, hearing the story, and even in the situation, except to the guy that's actually doing the choking. Right? He doesn't pick up on it. And so what this does immediately is it illustrates for us that every single one of us as servants of the king of the kingdom are on the same plane. We're on the same playing field. We all need mercy. We all have a debt between us and between the king that must be repaid. Chrysostom writes here and he says this about this first servant, this wicked servant. He says, he did not respect the very words through which he had himself been saved. And he did not recognize the harbor by means of which he had escaped shipwreck. Even the same gesture of supplication did not remind him of his master's kindness. And casting all of these out of his mind, he was more brutal than any wild beast in seizing his fellow servant by the throat and thereby revoked the gift of mercy. This first servant immediately forgets the extreme mercy that he had been shown by the king, and he forgets that we all need mercy and forgiveness. And he ignores the repentance, the plea, the begging of his brother, of his Adelphos, and he tosses him into debtor's prison. And rightly shocked, other servants see the reaction, and they run and report it to the king, like a bunch of tattletales, right? But they rightly should have done that. And so again, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven? No, 77 times, or 70 times seven. And that's the point that Jesus is getting at in this lesson. And so it, it's here, though, starting in the next verse, that we t it starts to take on its full meaning. He starts to give us the interpretation, even while he's still telling the parable. Because up to this point, everything has served to illustrate 
this necessity of unending forgiveness and mercy towards one another. And now he tells us why we are to have unending forgiveness. And so in verse 32, this next verse, the emphasis is then placed on the king's second reaction, particularly reminding the first servant about how much debt he had forgiven. Because he was forgiven so much, the servant ought to have forgiven much, regardless of the amount debt of debt owed to him. And so he says this. So the master summons him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you begged me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's a rhetorical question. When the king asks you that question, you just understand that the answer is yes. <laughs> it's rhetorical. Don't answer. <laughs> he knows the answer. But in these final verses, Jesus illustrates to us the difference between God's mercy and God's justice. The late, and I would personally say great, R.C. Sproul, who died in 2017. Um, I may have cried a little bit on that day. <laughs> uh, but all that to say, he had this great story that he used to share um, when he, to illustrate this particular point, the difference between God's mercy and God's justice. So R.C. used to teach, uh, other than Ligonier Ministries that he founded, he used to teach for a while also on the college level and the seminary level, right? So, and typically, you know, on the higher education levels, you have papers that are due, right, that can stress you out, but they're fun to do even though they stress you out. And so there was this one time in the beginning of a semester where there were a few students that were late turning in their first writing assignment. And so they asked him if they could have more time. And R.C., being a gracious professor, said, sure, I'll give you a few extra days. And so he showed them mercy. Well, a month or so goes by, second writing assignment is due, and those same students, assuming the mercy of the king, delay in turning it in, thinking they're going to get a few extra days. And he rightly gave them all zeros and did not allow them more time. To which they cried the cry of all students who have been shown mercy once, which is, that's not fair. That's not fair. You were fair. Why are you not being fair? And this is where I, I love this, because he, he almost gets a little angry in the recording, and it's funny, and he goes, no, that's fair. Fairness would be me going back and changing your first grade to a zero. You don't want fairness. You want mercy. That's what Jesus is getting at here. We don't want justice. We want mercy. The servant forgot that. And Jesus is reminding us of that same principle. We have received mercy because the justice of God was placed upon the crucified Christ. So when our Adelphos sins against us, and we rightly confront them for the purpose of discipline through repentance and redemption and restoration... Regardless of when they repent, we are to show them mercy. We pray this every single week in the Lord's Prayer when we come to the table. We pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's the principle being acted out here. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Once we have experienced God's merciful forgiveness, it is mandatory that we show it. And we show mercy, that same mercy and forgiveness to others. The principle of forgiveness and mercy is a real-time outworking of both the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer. 
in our communal life together in Christ. But then we come to these final two verses, which really are the most troubling for many of us. And he says this, And in anger his master, the king, delivered him to the jailers. Other translations in the Greek here read torturers. He was delivered over to be tortured until he should repay all of his debt. So, Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here's where it gets harder if it, ha- if it wasn't hard already. Because up until this point, we've been pretty comfortable with the lesson. right? But now Jesus illustrates for us really two very concerning for our ears but important qualities to keep in mind as we consider forgiveness and mercy and church discipline or consider withholding forgiveness and mercy in the act of church discipline. And the first principle is this law of retribution. It's illustrated throughout most of Scripture, particularly in the Revelation of John. But here, Jesus promises us that what we do to others, God will do to us. The wrathful refusal, like this wicked servant to forgive our Adelphos, to forgive our brother of the same community who sins against us, leads to experiencing the wrath of God in return. God will be filled with wrath and will punish those who refuse to show mercy and forgiveness in the church. But the second principle is a byproduct of that law of retribution, and that's God's response to those who claim Christ, who claim his mercy, who claim to be his people, his servants, his covenant community, but they refuse to forgive in their hearts. Reading this as believers in Christ, we have difficulty, and I had difficulty all week long reading this. We have difficulty contemplating God turning a believer over to torturers, to subjecting a believer to his wrath. We have, we have this is a hard time getting our minds wrapped around this, but let's ask, let's ask a serious question. Is that, what's going, is that what, exactly what's going on here? Is that what's happening? Look again at what happens. I'm going to pick all the way back up in verse 32. Again, his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy upon you? And in anger his master delivered him over to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus has actually already illustrated this very principle to us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, we read this starting in verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother, your Adelphos, has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. And truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Remember, the main purpose of church discipline is not retribution, but repentance and redemption and restoration. If we are without mercy, then discipline will be destructive, both for the offender but also for the church and the one who is unwilling to forgive. And so what this parable does is it challenges us to identify very intensely with the wicked servant. Because we all owe a debt to God that is unpayable 
due to our sin. We cannot pay that debt. And so like Peter before this parable in his question, we really aren't properly grasping the implications of God's mercy. No matter how much we are forgiven, we hesitate to forgive. And like Peter, what we want is we want limits on that. We don't like being made a fool of. And so like the wicked servant, we want to be forgiven more than we want to turn around and forgive. But Jesus, in these last two verses, he leaves us no doubt about our requirement to forgive one another. And he sees absolutely zero contradiction in the actions of the Heavenly Father who forgives bountifully but also punishes ruthlessly. And if Jesus doesn't see a contradiction, then neither should we. And so Chrysostom reminds us here, he says this, he says, Since you did not become better by receiving blessings, then it remains for you to be corrected by punishment. And since you have not become better by kindness being shown to you, it remains that you be corrected only by vengeance. And then he says this, Chrysostom reminds us that Jesus uses a very interesting word, word phrasing here in this last verse. He refers to the Father as my Father, not your Father. And a lot of these parables, Jesus says, your Heavenly Father. But here he says this, and so my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you. And so Chrysostom states this, he says, it is not proper for God to be called the Father of anyone who is so wicked and so malicious. Echoing this, Matthew Henry, who was a pastor in the late 1700s, states this, This does not teach us that God reverses his pardon to any one of us, but rather he denies them to those who thought themselves in a pardoned state. Meaning that those who do not forgive their brother their trespasses never truly repented of their own and never believed the gospel. So if church discipline is meant to be redemptive, and if it's meant to be restorative, then consider what this parable is doing. It's flipping that on its head to remind us of the effect that happens if church discipline is not worked out in that way. If we refuse to forgive, it's not that the promise of the gospel is removed from us. It's that the promise of the gospel was never embraced in the first place. These are the Pharisees. These are the Sadducees. These are the Gnostics. These are those who are proclaimers of a gospel other than Christ Jesus, crucified and resurrected. These are the ones that Paul tells the Galatians that if they proclaim a gospel other than the one you have heard, then let them be accursed. These people who do not forgive in their hearts are still sitting under the curse. And we forgive because we fully comprehend that we have been forgiven. So let's ask a couple of hard questions and then we'll come to the table together. Are we claiming the name of Christ while also withholding forgiveness? Who is your brother? Who is your Adelphos that you have not forgiven in your heart? Our God is a forgiving God. And the proof of his forgiveness is in the bodily incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are commanded to be just as forgiving as God is forgiving. Referencing Romans 11.29, Chrysostom states this, he says, Although the blessings of the gifts of God are irreversible, they are irrevocable, he will not revoke them. What can be more grievous a thing than to be vengeful, especially when it appears to overthrow so great a gift from God? Beloved of God, don't falsely claim the name of Jesus while persisting in a refusal to forgive your brother. The only action left to us is to plead the blood of the Lord Jesus. 
That's all that we have. It's only through Christ that we have any hope. And it's God's great forgiveness of us through the death and resurrection of Christ that we should not use it as an excuse to forgive our Adelphos. The sacrifice of Jesus should never be used as an excuse to abuse the power of the keys of the kingdom. Yes, Jesus is our hope, our righteousness, our salvation, our joy, and our crown. Christ is all in all. But when we abuse this to withhold forgiveness and mercy or to hold a grudge, we profane the sacrifice of Christ. We profane the forgiveness that we have been given from the King in the work of the Lord Jesus. And so because our God has forgiven us mightily, we too should forgive mightily. So, my beloved in Christ, beg our great King for mercy to forgive your debt of unpayable sins that could only be paid by Christ. But also forgive those who have sinned against you. Speak and live the gospel as a living sacrifice to the world by granting forgiveness to one another and mercy to one another. Seek the peace of Christ Jesus. Seek unity in his church. And draw one another closer to Christ by forgiving as God has forgiven you.